You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 29th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Guy Delaunay. Coming up on today's programme... That's Ukrainians celebrating the shooting down of drones, but explosions have been rocking Kiev as Russia fires more than 120 missiles at Ukraine. We'll have the latest. Russian tourism to the EU drops by 95%. We'll get the view from Vienna with our correspondent there. Plus, Fernando Augusto Pacheco brings us a special festive global countdown and we'll have all the latest news and trends in the world of luxury and fashion. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Guy Delaunay. Air raid sirens have been sounding across Ukraine, with Russia firing more than 120 missiles this morning. The impact's been felt in several cities, including the capital Kiev. It's part of the biggest wave of strikes in weeks, targeting Ukraine's national infrastructure. Attacks have been coming from multiple directions, with the deployment of both air and sea-based cruise missiles. Well, for the latest, joining us now on the briefing is James Rogers, the author of Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. Welcome to the briefing, James. I mean, just first of all, 120 missiles fired this morning. Can we put that in context, please? How, how severe is that in the, in the great scheme of things? Well, it is pretty severe. It's, uh, and these, once again, seem to have targeted all kinds of infrastructure. I mean, just to, uh, to get on the, on the missiles in particular, Guy, um, the head of the Ukrainian military general, Valery Zaluzhny, has said that um, there were 69 missiles fired, and they, Ukrainians claim, of which the Ukrainians claim to have shot down 54, as that audio that you played just mm. at the beginning of the program suggested. So the Ukrainian missile defences do seem to be working to an extent. The reports have uh, just three injuries in Kiev. Um, but clearly, you know, this was a very, very large attack launched from both land and sea, uh, and a very clear sign that even if we've heard these sort of rumours, these sort of mumblings about peace talks or possible what it might take to get negotiations started in the last few days, this is very, very much an active and very dangerous conflict. We've heard, of course, about the deployment of Iranian drones uh, by Russia. But does this uh, deployment of cruise missiles, is that different? Does that indicate that Russia's still got more in its, uh, in its material locker than perhaps uh, we've been led to believe? Well, that's it. this is one of the things that, you know, various Western intelligence reports have speculated about the extent to which Russia is actually running down its ammunition stocks. Of course, it's very clear um, how whatever situation this war finds itself in now, that Russia never planned for it to go on for quite this long and has had to adjust, as you say, by bringing in Ukrainian drones in one case. Um, and then there have been all the other things, the, the, you know, the attendant problems that have come with sanctions of Russia not apparently having access to all the technology that's required to build new missiles and things. But as, as you say, today's attack suggests that there is still uh, a fairly you know, a substantial um, store of missiles which Russia can launch at Ukraine. Mm. And what about Ukraine and its air defences? They were scheduled to receive uh, the Patriot anti, anti-missile defence system from the United States. Is that making a difference? Is that in place yet? If not, when's it coming? 
It will do. I mean, it's it, it, that's I think what Ukraine is really relying upon. Um, you may have seen that the head of Ukrainian military intelligence has given an interview uh, this morning to the BBC in which he suggested that in effect both sides are at a standstill. He's saying you know neither side has the um, ability at the moment to uh, to score a complete victory over the other. Um, and he is very much looking forward to he you know he says the new we're we're looking forward to new weapons supplies but at the same time you know we have had the russian foreign minister sergey lavrov saying in an interview on russian television that um russia is going to look for new ways to try to stop unspecified of course tr to try to stop ukraine receiving um weapons from its western allies because it, it's pretty clear of course that ukraine could not have resisted as long as it could without those supplies coming from the united states and other countries president zelensky's visit um, to Washington just over a week ago. Of course, he got a pledge of $1.8 billion worth of new military aid, including the Patriot missile system, as you mentioned. Uh, the other matter is not just the defence with which Patriot's part of, but the attacks that Ukraine's been making, making very good use of missile systems like British N-Laws, American HIMARS. Uh, but uh, from what I've been reading, uh, it's not as if the Western allies have, uh, have an unlimited supply of these weapons themselves. No, they don't. It's a consequence of the kind of Europe that we've lived in for the last, you know, half century and more that, you know, people are not stocking up um, weapons, particularly not since the end of the Cold War. And that is something that's come through because no, in the same way that Russia probably doesn't have an unlimited supply of cruise missiles, neither do the allies who are supplying uh, the Ukrainians. This is not a war that anyone, you know, foresaw, not a war that anyone had really planned for, with the possible exception of Russia. And in that sense, it hasn't even gone according to plan. So this is really, you know, testing um, weapon stocks in a way that they never even were during the Cold War, because while they might have existed, they were never used and therefore never depleted in anything like the same way. How easy it is with these sort of modern weapons? Because from my understanding, not being a specialist, but, you know, looking at things like HIMARS and N-Laws, they seem to be quite sophisticated um, compared to, you know, the, the, the kind of very unsophisticated Soviet-era drones uh, that Ukraine had at the start of the war. Uh, so how quickly can they scale up production? So that A, they can give more weapons to Ukraine and B, the Western allies can make sure their own stocks are not dangerously low. Well, I think that's that's a that's a very good question, and one I wish which I suspect military planners right across the Western Alliance are, are trying to answer at the moment for the simple reason that, as I say, nobody foresaw this, nobody has really prepared for it, and these things are not, uh, you know, because of the different components and the high technology involved, are not things that can be instantly thrown together. The other question, of course, as well, is the political will. You know, these mm. these things are hugely hugely expensive, uh, and it will rely upon you know public opinion in the United States. The United Kingdom and elsewhere continuing to think that government is doing the right thing by spending millions, you know, billions of dollars um, to uh, to continue to help Ukraine. Because without that kind of support, it's pretty clear that, you know, never take setting aside the great dedication and the obvious morale that the Ukraine and the, and the fortitude which the Ukrainian forces have shown they are we have to face the basic fact they are facing a much more larger enemy and just one final thing just quickly uh, if you don't mind James uh, you talked about public opinion in the West what about public opinion in Russia you obviously specialize in that is, is what where does that stand at the moment are they still behind Vladimir Putin and his war in Ukraine as, far as one can tell it is honestly very difficult to say that guy I mean if you consider that with that Russia 
Russia is now a country in which to call the war a war is to risk jail. Then, even you know, up until relatively recently, even as the Putin administration, um, you know, cracked down on freedoms of the press and political expression, there were pretty reliable opinion polls coming out of Russia conducted by sociologists. Um, but I think you know, it is also probably true to say that. One thing that that Putin, uh, uh, that the Kremlin has achieved over the last 10 months is to place 20th century restrictions on 21st century media. There is very little discussion, you know, there, uh, thereby allowing Russian state propaganda to function, you know, unopposed in, in very, very many cases. Uh, and for that reason, you know, there will be larger parts of Russian public opinion who are buying the current Kremlin narrative that this is a war, not simply um, against Ukraine. This is a war. Um, uh, in effect against NATO. And that is, I think, probably still guaranteeing a good degree of public support uh, for Russia's policy in Ukraine at the moment. OK, James, thank you very much for that. That was James Rogers. Now here's Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Guy. The European Commission is set to meet to discuss possible measures for a coordinated approach by EU states to the explosion of COVID cases in China. The United States is the latest in a growing number of countries to impose restrictions on visitors from China after Beijing abruptly removed a major impediment to overseas travel despite surging COVID cases at home. The United Nations have temporarily stopped some time-critical programs in Afghanistan and warned that many other activities will also likely need to be paused because of a ban by the Taliban-led administration on women aid workers. The move comes as the EU and foreign ministers of 12 countries, including the United States and Britain, urged Afghanistan's Taliban-led government to reverse its decision barring female employees of aid groups. A massive fire that tore through a hotel and casino in the Cambodian border town of Poi Pet has killed at least 16 people, with around 50 people injured. Local media reported that foreign nationals were inside the casino at the time of the fire. Australia has approved a request to extradite former U.S. Marine Corps pilot Daniel Duggan to the United States, where he faces charges of money laundering and breaking U.S. arms control laws. Duggan was arrested in Australia in October and remains in custody. He is accused of breaking U.S. arms control laws by training Chinese military pilots to land on aircraft carriers. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Guy. Thank you to Emma. And it's now time to check in with Monocle's correspondent in Vienna, Alexei Korolyov. How are you doing, Alexei? I'm well, I'm well. Hi, Guy. Very nice, uh, very nice to be on the briefing. Excellent to have you in the festive season. But firstly, uh, I mean, a lot of people travelling in the festive season, as we can see here in London, but uh, not apparently Russians to Vienna. No, uh, not at all. Um, actually, there's been a huge drop uh, comparing to pre-pandemic times. Um so I've got the numbers right here in front of me, the statistics. So this year we've had 7,000 overnight stays by Russians in Vienna, only 7,000. Um, while in 2019, that number was 460,000. So that's wow. a 65-fold decrease. And of course, pre-Crimea in uh, 2013, that was 700,000 Russians. So a 100-fold decrease there. Yeah. So we've seen this huge drop. But of course, Russians are going elsewhere, um, and um, you know, Russian media and Russian officials are sort of trying to um, present it in, in sort of in a, in a positive way, saying that Russians now, without specifying why, um, um, this year have been plumping for Russian resorts hmm. or for countries like uh, Turkey, 
um, Armenia and Georgia, which um, don't require Russians to have visas to enter. Um, and um, there's been a report recently by Radio Free Europe saying that Iran is fast becoming a hot destination for mm. Russian tourists, uh, especially from next year when it will waive all visa requirements for Russian tourist groups, uh, which in a way reflects this, um, you know, the sort of warming ties between Moscow and Tehran. Um, and um, but we'll see, you know, we'll we'll see where this goes. Obviously, well, they're, they're, uh, they're certainly disrupting the, uh, the the real estate market in Belgrade. Belgrade, um, but mm. uh, I think that's more people are moving there rather than tourists. But that's uh, that's frankly astonishing. Uh, are the tourism hospitality businesses in Vienna are they are they weeping into their coffee? Well, not really. I mean, um, again, I, I, I was talking to somebody at the Vienna Tourist Board recently, and they said that, uh, you know, tourism to Vienna by um, all nationalities have sort of bounced back, really, uh, almost to pre-pandemic times, uh, pre-pandemic levels. Um, so that's good. But of course, you know, Austrian business, uh, especially, you know, uh, luxury shops and, and hotels and so on, are feeling the sort of loss of Russians, wealthy Russians especially. That said, I have to say that, you know, I, I've been hearing a lot of Russian speech on the streets of Vienna recently. Um, but, you know, it's it, it's hard mm. to tell. Um, Who knows? They, know, they, they may all just be in the Bermuda Triangle, right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> For the uninitiated, yeah. that's, a, that's a nightlife district in Vienna. It still is, isn't it? It was when I was last there anyway. Well, yes, yeah, uh, but again, you know, with all these, um, all this Russian speech on the streets, which I'm sure you know, you're hearing a lot of that in Ljubljana and in, in, in Belgrade yep. as well. Lots of Ukrainians um, around as, as, exactly, as well as, yeah. as well as Russians. I need to ask you though, but you, you say that uh, the seven thousand officially in, in uh, have arrived in Vienna uh, in in the past year. Uh, how many of those are spies? Because uh, apparently, it's a, it's a hub for Russian espionage still. <laughs> Well, that's even harder to tell, uh, obviously. Yes, Vienna does remain a hub for espionage for Russians. Uh, and we had the story recently, about two weeks ago, of a Greek national with Russian roots, who apparently had been spying for Russia, acting as a sort of mood barometer for um, for Russia, you know, sort of um, there to say whether... Um, you know, what, what Europeans, what Austrians especially are feeling about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, what are they saying about Russia and so on. And we've seen stories like that all across Europe, of course, but Austria does remain uh, this espionage hub. Um, and uh, according to a recent report, again, by uh, Austria's Der Standard newspaper, every fourth Russian spy in Europe is now active in Austria. Um, <laughs> I can't really give you any 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 numbers on that. <laughs> the, the, the third man is alive and well and living in Vienna. Um, <laughs> but what isn't uh, alive and well particularly is uh, political gossip. Uh, it's gone all quiet on the uh, the Vienna political front over the festive season. That is absolutely right. Yeah, so Austria has had this tradition recently um, over the past, let's say, four or five years that major political change took place around Christmas. Um, you know, last year, uh, especially, you know, we've had um, a change of um, three, we've had three chancellors uh, and, you know, Sebastian Kurz, uh, the, the the famous Austrian um, um, politician, uh, quitting politics altogether last Christmas. You know, all that is gone now. Nothing of the sort has happened this Christmas. <laughs> um, and the joke doing the rounds is, is that it's because... Um, the Austrian parliament uh, is now being reopened after extensive renovations that took um, uh, about five years. You know, so now that Austrian MPs are back where they should be, back where they belong, 
all will be well. But we'll see about that. We will indeed. Alexei, thanks very much for joining us. That's Alexei Korolev, Monocle's correspondent in Vienna. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. It's 12.15 here in London and it's time now for Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Tom Edwards to kick around a special festive version of the Global Countdown. Well, here we are for the second instalment of a special seasonal Global Countdown. Fernando Augusto Pacheco is here with me in Studio One. And Faye, if people were listening at around this time last week, they'll know that you've got a few uh, seasonal moods and themes and you're going to reflect on those uh, with some uh, choice tracks that you've chosen. Um, But this is, we should point out, different than the usual Global Countdown. The only uh, sort of... The only record buyer that matters is Fernando. No global charts, it's not about sales, it's just about tracks you like. It's my personal global chart. So basically, Tom, I selected 50 tracks for the new issue of Monaco. So songs, you know, so you can enjoy this winter and and during the holidays as well. And there are five different moods of it. So I'm going to give you a taster. Of course, if you want to have you know, have a full look at the list, go and buy a copy of the new issue as well. It's available on all good newsstands exactly. now or from our website. Um, so remind us of your first mood and tell us about your first record. The first mood is Christmas Paradise. I know it's Christmas over. Hope you had a great Christmas Very time, nice, by the way. You, yeah. And I just want to tell listeners, I mean, if you like Monaco, you need to know this track. I mean, every Christmas party, this is the official kind of Monaco song. I mean, it's not Mariah Carey, it's not When, it is a song by Tatsuru Yamashita, which is brilliant and quite melancholic at the same time, which I quite like. Uh, and, and it's a staple in the Japanese charts. So every Christmas, it returns to the charts. It's an all-time classic. Let's have a listen. Tatsuru Yamashita with Christmas Eve. Now, as you say, Fernando, even though Christmas has passed by, um, that is a refrain that you never tire of hearing. And I've heard so many monocle versions of that. Should we reveal this? It's a bit of a go-to, isn't it, on the kind of karaoke hit list? Our editorial director Talibrilla, <laughs> he always sings along to it. And and many other many other stuff I have to add as well. But let's change the gear completely. I mean, I'll, my next mood is crisp winter morning. And this is the kind of track I like to hear on a crisp winter morning indeed. It feels like a a musical breeze. I mean, I don't know if you like uh, Germans move jazz with some touches of synthesizers. If the time is right, Fernando. It might be a good discovery. I have a feeling I might like this. It's uh, by a G- the German group Dancing Fantasy, and the song is called Good Morning America. <laughs> Wow, 
indeed, Fernando. Yeah. Powerful late <laughs> 80s vibes. 87, to be more precise. And and I like, because dancing fantasy is a vibe. I mean, they are from Germany. But, you know, their songs is about Hawaii, about California, about, you know, th- th- there's a little bit of escapism from where mm. uh, where they're from. I, f- I think it's it's a wonderful track, a actually. The late 80s fantasy. Exactly. It's making me nostalgic, Fernando. <laughs> we should quickly move on. What's next on your list? Uh, it's a little bit of dream pop. Uh, and the mood for this is Whiskey Sour by the Fire. I mean, this is this is the song for a Whiskey Sour by the Fire. I wonder if you're going to like this. This one, actually, I'm not too sure. If you're not confident, YouTube. Fernando, we could be in trouble. <laughs> but, you know, I love the name of the band. Cigarettes After Sex with Apocalypse. I mean, that is smooth. That's so relaxed, it's almost completely supine. I can have a lot of whiskey sours by the fire (laughs) listening to this. Uh, That's very good mood music, Fernando. It's really good. Good, Good sound design, my friend. And I know we're almost approaching 2023. I think our Asian listeners will be happy to know that Cigarettes After Sex will be touring Asia in January, February. So they're going to Bangkok, they're going to Japan. So, you know, stay tuned there. Go to their website. Get to I mean, some live music. Exactly. Sultry, smouldering performances, I imagine, the order of the day. Exactly. Um, Fernando, I would say that's my favourite of this week's selections so far. And that's interesting because you seemed uncertain. How are you feeling about your next pick and where it will fare on the old Tom Edwards ometer. I think the next one is an interest. Even if you don't like it, you have to admit that he's an interesting guy. He's from South Africa and he's known generally as South Africa's disco king. So he's been going on since... I sound like I like him already. <laughs> exactly. Uh, since kind of the early 90s. So he plays around with house music, some genres from South Africa. And South Africa is such an exciting country musically. And this song is upbeat. It's part of my endless summer uh, mood. So of course, you will see how they are very suitable, this song and the mood. Let's have a listen to the wonderful Penny Penny with Shakabundu. <laughs> Loving it. And I can a bit see of dancing. Kind of call yeah. and response going on there. And that is evocative of the beautiful South African winter sunshine. I mean, that's what I need, as in our winter. It's so, where we should well, really be, let's be honest, not in grey and chilly London. No whiskey sours by the far bit. Maybe <laughs> ice cold beers by the beach. Sounds good. Sounds good to me. I, I love that, Fernando. That was an excellent pick. And this one is a personal favourite that I'm going to end with. Uh, Ready for 2023. It's a song from Brazil as well. And for me, it represents optimism. Look at the lyrics, though. I know maybe it's a bit clunky if I translate into English, but it says, I want to see the sunset, beautiful as it is, people to see and travel. I mean, this is the song for 2020. We can drink to that, Fernando. And that's translated from what? It's from this beautiful track that we're going to listen now. It's by Dijavan Lilas, which means lilac. Muito mais.
oh, good stuff said, yeah. There's been, you've, you've tapped into a rich nostalgia fest today. Even though we're looking ahead to 23, mm-hmm. uh, nice job. I think it's important sometimes because there are some old tracks that you kind of rediscover along the way as mm. well. Um, Fernando, let's uh, can just briefly, before we wrap things up, talk about 23 then. What is it going to be musically? The year of what? I think there's a great sense of optimism. Let's be honest, probably most of us are reasonably glad to see the back of 2022 for various reasons. Um, what are you thinking 23? Is it geographies? Is it genres? What's kind of in the in the Fernando mindset for, that's going to define the next 12 months? For me, it's all about geographies, actually, Tom. You know, I had, I had the opportunity to go to Dakar this month, and I think it, it's, it was so amazing being there and seeing so many new Senegalese artists and there's so many cool stuff because to be honest in well in the continent of Africa I knew a lot about South African music but not so much about Senegalese I'm trying to change that and we might see this reflected on the playlist as well so of course France still you know charms my heart but you know but let's look at Colombia, Senegal and other countries as well, Tom. Fernando, we will be occasionally reluctant travellers on that journey with you <laughs> yes. musically, myself and Andrew Miller at least. Yes. Um, but it's always great fun uh, to hear the global countdown. I hope you wrap up 22 well and bona fortuna for 2023. Thank you. Happy New Year. And that was Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco speaking to Tom Edwards. I can't possibly not contribute my own geographical favourites uh, from Doncaster, Skinny Palembe, from London, Salt, from New York, Jonas Policewoman, and from my very own native Liverpool, Michael Head. I think you should give that a listen as well. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Finally, fashion in the festive season should mean a lot more than just hideous novelty jumpers. It's also time for the luxury labels to take stock and look ahead to the new year. So with me now from Miami is Alison Stewart-Allen, CEO at International Marketing Partners and author of the book Working with Americans. Welcome back to the briefing, Alison. Uh, let's start with some trends we're seeing. And uh, you want to bring up this huge expansion of luxury brands in regional cities. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Guy. Yes, it's a a very interesting development. Uh, And it's obviously fueled by the fact that certainly in the US, now the biggest global luxury market overtaking China, Mm. several brands, uh, Chanel, Hermes, LVMH, uh, Kering's uh, various uh, labels are all looking at regional cities. So historically, you know, we had New York, Los Angeles, uh, Houston, uh, but now they're looking even more regionally. So you have cities in Ohio, you have Austin, Texas, uh, and you have a lot of smaller cities where these brands see huge revenue potential, especially because post-COVID, you know, the money has moved out of the big cities. Uh, people are now working from home. We have more hybrid uh, professional uh, high earners, and they're not concentrated any longer necessarily in those hotspots. And therefore, those brands are following the money. I've noticed that in the past, um, high-end brands have tended to, you know, uh, follow when there's a new retail development in a city. So if you get a Westfield, say, in uh, Stratford, or if you get a Liverpool one in Liverpool, you'll find suddenly that there's these high-end retailers who weren't even in those areas before. Are they, is this still persisting now, or are they just looking for existing shops, which I presume, you know, there's plenty of vacancies? 
Well, um, really the latter point, you know, they're not necessarily going with shopping center operators mm. like a Westfield. They're looking at sites now that are in up and coming areas uh, and in uh, more regional locations, not just in the U.S., that is, uh, but all over the world. But you're absolutely right. You know, real estate now uh, on the back of uh, many cities being hollowed out uh, because of COVID, uh, there are now several uh, retail uh, locations that perhaps they never would have considered before. Uh, and that's, again, back to who their shopper is. You know, increasingly now, these luxury brands are finding 15-year-olds and teenagers uh, very interested in their trainers uh, and in their casual wear, uh, and that's a very interesting phenomenon. I've got one of those, and he was taking the mickey out of somebody the other day for wearing what he said was clearly a fake Montclair jacket. Um, and this is a growing problem for the uh, for the industry, I guess, and maybe especially with teenagers, that if they haven't got the dosh, uh, they wear something uh, a, a, a bit dodgy. Uh, yes, that's always been a problem for retail, for especially for luxury uh, retailers. Is the is the knockoffs, uh, and you know it's the whack-a-mole game. You know, as soon as you shut uh, one down, and often they're online retailers, uh, another one pops up, and this is an you know this comes with the territory. I mean, part of it. Uh, you know, I, I have a couple of luxury brand clients who say our problem is when that stops. In some ways, we become less covetable when the knockoffs stop existing. So, you know, it's a bit of a, a double-edged sword. Everybody I, I, I know, I'm, I'm a Liverpool supporter, Liverpool Football Club, and uh, when the new shirts come out each season, people moan about the, the cost of them, and then they promptly go to a Chinese website called DHgate and uh, get very good knockoffs from there, or at least so they say. Uh, this is a big problem for big brands you, you, you know, I know you're saying that uh, they, they, they like it in a way but when you've got a market like China and you've got a production area like China that's a huge problem for them isn't it it definitely is and you know the legal teams in all of these luxury brands are extremely busy uh, not just looking at protecting uh, the designs uh, in their home markets uh, but in enforcing their IP rights in places like China. Uh, and it's extremely difficult. I mean, it's not just relevant to luxury. Uh, you know, many other brands, uh, like you're suggesting with the uh, football shirts, mm. uh, this is the case across the board. How do you make, you know, how do you enforce your IP rights uh, if you don't have tons of people on the ground, because that's really expensive. Uh, and so this is a huge challenge. Not, And it's not just China, by the way. Uh, it's a lot of other places, such as Turkey, uh, who are outside EU regulations uh, and therefore can create knockoff watches and jewelry and fashion. Uh, and it's how do you find these people and uh, use the court system uh, to take them down and, and take them out of the market? And you say that the the big problem isn't so much online. That's easier to take them down, relatively speaking. The problem is actual physical merchants on the street. That's absolutely right. Uh, and uh, like I say, you know, you would need an army of people uh, to police all of these uh, pop-up, often pop-up retailers uh, who sell their knockoffs. Uh, how do you find them? How do you use uh, the courts to issue injunctions? It's a really expensive business, but then again, it comes with the territory. If you're a luxury brand, you must enforce your rights, otherwise you lose them.
interesting lessons for us all, Alison. Thanks very much for joining us. That was Alison Stewart-Allen in Miami. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb and our studio manager was Nora Hurl. The Briefing is back tomorrow with me at the same time. I'll also be back with The Globalist first thing in the morning. I'm Guy Delaunay. Goodbye and thanks for listening.